Thank you, guys. Oh, great merciful God, hide me where you are. Oh, great merciful God, cover me. Yeah, I love the fact that God is, God is for broken people. And, you know, I, I always used to think he was for the people that were really good at this stuff. But, I mean, he is, but I don't think he's impressed by whatever good we do or whatever, a throw by whatever bad we do. He just has locked himself into your face and thrown away the key. He loves you. And even those of us who find ourselves in patterns that are destructive, that are hurtful, maybe when in a relationship or a friendship or in your own personal life, just know that God, first of all, just accepts you as you are and that he longs to cover you, whether you change or not. And there's something in that place of knowing that God knows the very worst about you and he's never disappointed in you. He's always for you. And his grace is always there to help and to strengthen, to forgive and to cover and to cleanse. But that same grace, as we open ourselves to that, which is really a challenge because condemnation seems so appropriate for our stupid. We just want to beat ourselves with our own sense of failure. God doesn't want you to do that because here's the bottom line. What Jesus did on the cross outshines what we do in our stupid. The influence of Jesus to God's heart is greater than our failures. And we are always welcome. Oh, great, merciful God, hide me in your arms. Take me into your arms and know that he covers us. I love that song. So I was having a moment. Thank you. We're talking about the creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We declare that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Oh, look at this. I'm going to turn professor on you this morning. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again, the claim is, to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of the world to come. So today we pick it up where we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. This term Catholic is not referring to Roman Catholic. It's referring to the idea of unity, togetherness, inclusiveness, universal gathering of the people of God. That's what Catholic means. Now let me begin by saying that these declarations that we're making in the Apostles' Creed, week in and week out, carry a scandal of appearances. What I mean by that is that it, it makes these audacious claims about things that to many appear to be untrue. So to many it appears that the world is random and meaningless. 
Yet the creed claims that God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen, and that God created things with an ordered intention for its future. Right? Uh, it appears to most that evil always triumphs and that death always wins, and yet the creed claims that God will one day judge evil and cause the good and the just and the beautiful to reign. It goes against what seems to be true. How can three ever be one? That's the claim. It defies reason, yet the creed claims God is three in one. The creed also asserts that there is this eternal, infinite God who has chosen to be the savior of all that live in this finite reality. And many think, really? I mean, if there were a God, why would this God have that kind of concern for corrupt, broken humanity? It doesn't seem true. Why would an infinite one care enough to enter the material world and our bodily lives to become the crucified one? It doesn't seem logical. There's the scandal of appearances. The confession is that Jesus will return physically to rule the world. The claim begs wrinkled brows. <laughs> the 2,000-year-ago Jesus is actually coming into our modern world. And then we arrive at the place in the confession where it claims that there is one church that is holy, that is Catholic, united and inclusive, and apostolic, which means that the original founders of the church, the apostles, would still recognize the church if they were to come back today. This language, one holy Catholic apostolic church, is the, are the phrases that are added to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and I want to resource that a little bit in our talk today. But have you looked at the church lately? <laughs> is it one? Is it holy, right? Isn't it more broken than holy? More judgmental than loving? Is it Catholic? Is it inclusive? Is it united? Would the apostles recognize her? See, the appearance of things forces us to pause and to wonder. How could the triune God choose the church, a church, that is composed of broken humanity as the instrument of the work of transforming the world when the church herself seems to be in deep need of transformation? And yet the creed claims that God does call the church and calls us to believe in this struggling community of frail, imperfect human beings as God's instrument to transform the world. My point is, is that the creed blatantly contradicts the appearances of things, hence it has the scandal of appearances. The creed claims that there will be a resurrection from the dead, a completely new world, such an audacious claim in the face of no real evidence. Week after week, we stand, we speak this creed boldly in the face of these contrary appearances, and we do so fearlessly. We can because faith is the stuff of revelation, not of natural thought, human thought. As you declare this with us and find yourself wondering, man, is this stuff really true? That's not hypocrisy on your part. That's just being human. I mean, a commitment to the creed is not a commitment that you are declaring you have absolute certitude about these things. 
It is just a simple commitment to faithfulness, to revelation. Augustine says so beautifully in the Confessions, this book that's a whole prayer that he prays. He says in Confessions 8.1, I no longer desired to be more certain of you, only to stand more firmly in you. <laughs> Frederick Buchner is, a, Buchner is a great author. I have a number of quotes that I love from his stuff. One of them is, quote, faith is not being sure where you're going, but going anyway. <laughs> Even when you're sharing your faith with someone else, your goal should never be to prove to them that the gospel is true. You can't prove that. The goal should simply explain why you live the way you do. I live this way because I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe this way because I believe in Jesus Christ as only son. 2 Peter 3 says it this way, but in your hearts, you just set apart Christ as Lord. And then always be prepared to give an answer. In other words, people are asking about that. Give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason that you have hope. Not the proof of it, but the reason for it. That you have hope that you have. Do this, though, with gentleness and respect. There's no forcing here. There's no argument here. We're to give witness to our faith, not to prove it, not to convince others like a great lawyer. If you truly set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart, you'll end up having questions asked of you because it will make you live in a different way than others live. As a community, we need to be fine with people who say, I don't know if I can believe that today when we say the creed. We should be fine with that. I mean, some days I am all in. I don't know why, but it glows in me. And I would be willing to die for it, right? The stuff that we say we believe. Other days, not so much. <laughs> Again, to Frederick Buchner, he said, quote, Every morning you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? No, better still don't ask it until after you've read the New York Times. Until <laughs> after you've studied the daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, which should always stand side by side with your Bible. Then ask yourself if you can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day. If your answer is always yes, then you probably don't know what believing means. At least five times out of ten, the answer should be no, because the no is as important as the yes, maybe more so, end quote. I say, Pastor Ed, that confuses me. No, it just reveals the confusion you're already in. Madeleine L'Engle Camp, she's the American fiction writer who passed away a few years ago, she wrote this, I think it's great. Quote, sometimes I just know that I'm going to come down with an attack of atheism again. It's like the flu, spiritual flu I call it. I get ready to endure three or four days of doubt and deep distance from God. Then through the grace of God, I find myself spiritually well again. End quote. I love the honesty of these words because it captures the essence of true faith. It's not certitude, it's conviction. The good news about being part of the people of faith is when we stand together and declare what we believe, 
it's okay that you're not believing everything in the moment because when you can't, some of us can. And when some of us can't, you will be able to. That's what being part of church is about. The usness of faith is the beautiful thing about faith. What, which is the beauty of the claim of the creed about the church, right? Now, before attempting to quickly unpack the theology of the church, <laughs> think of that. <laughs> Good luck, Edwin. Uh, which I, I want to use these four criteria, as I said, from the Nicene Creed, which describes the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, the first thing I want to say about the church is, is that the creed claims that one exists. The purpose of the church is to be an ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ, the embodied presence of the resurrected Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people as they live together. When Paul speaks of the body of Christ, he means that there's a gathering of human beings that exists in the world where the raised Messiah is finding continual expression in the world. That's what the church is. And the Bible is clear on this point. It's echoed in the creed. God is not only active in individual human lives. I mean, thank God that he is. But he's active in an institutional gathering of complex, messy human people relating to one another intentionally and in spite of what might divide them. God rests there. Last week we talked about how the Trinity is the mystery of God's own life, given, received, and shared, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a never-diminished abundance of being within God's self. In other words, the Trinity shows us God as community. When we're made in the likeness and image of God, it's less about being individually created and more about we were made, male and female, in God's image. It's the us-ness that most displays him, not the me-ness. God's inner life is revealed to us as it's lived in community. So the church is really a call into the life of the Trinity, what we do in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all that we do, this is an indication that we're called into community, not just individual identity as Christians. God's laboratory for communal life is the church. That is where Christ's pattern of life for others, which Paul consistently claims is the mind of Christ, that's where he, he says that we fulfill the law of Christ. It's in the us, the relationship between one another. It's where we bear one another's burdens, Paul says. See, the church is the seat of putting Christ's impulse of self-donation on display. To deny this is to deny the way God chose to bring salvation to the world. Salvation is more than just a tract you pass out. It involves more than just a message you defend. It's a call to a kind of life. That's why in the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way, not the message. 
Now, let me say a couple of things that may offend you, because I so seldom do that. <laughs> when people are asked, are you saved? They should never answer, why, yes, I prayed this sinner's prayer, and I'm going to have it. It's not, an, it's not a full enough answer. When someone asks you, are you saved, the biblical response would be, yes, I am among the people whom God is saving. Oh, thank you. I was milking it. Christian salvation does not pertain only to individuals. It does, but not in isolation. In Scripture, salvation is understood in communal terms. God seeks the salvation of a people and seeks their salvation as a people. That's why salvation was always conflated into baptism. We've separated it in the modern world. But when you came to Christ, you were baptized. Why? Because you can't be baptized by yourself. You can't baptize yourself. You have to be baptized by another who's a member of the. The call to Christ was a call to his community. The call to Christ was a call to his body. Both Old and New Testaments testify to God's desire to form a people who are God's own on this earth. You cannot read the Old Testament except as a story of God's effort to shape a distinctive people among the nations of the world. A nation so committed to God's will that they would become a light to the Gentiles. The Jews were called and nurtured as a people. Critical distinction, as a people. For the sake of revealing God's glory to the world, showing all other human beings how the power and the presence of God can transform human ways, human ways in the, by quashing destructive patterns of individualism that grew from disordered lives given to sin, and to the to call us to a kind of they called to a constructive life, lived in community where there was fidelity. And where there was compassion, that's what God's dream is. The New Testament's the same. It's the story of establishing and nurturing a people, a community to become the temple of the living God together as the power of the Spirit fell upon them, right? You remember the story, Acts 2. Listen to the usness of this text. The Spirit falls not when they were off on their own in their prayer closet doing personal devotions, Listen, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So hear me. We find no Christians in the New Testament except as members of a community called the church. No members, separate. None of the exhortations in the New Testament are directed to individual Christians. They always speak to the attitudes, the dispositions, and the practices of the communities. New Testament writings are always explicitly or imp implicitly addressed to public assembly of believers, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Ephesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In fact, the way Paul claims to have turned over someone to Satan 
for the destruction of their flesh. You may not be aware of that text. It's an odd one. You say, what does it mean? I used to know. <laughs> but listen to it. This is a crazy text. 1 Corinthians 5. Even though I'm not physically present, Paul's writing, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Shazam. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And then in verse 13, he explains what he means by turning them over to Satan. God will judge those outside, expel the wicked men from among you. In other words, turning a person over to Satan was simply making that person do faith on his or her own. Outside the community. Turning someone over to Satan was separating them from the community. Turning someone over to Satan. Some people think they're just being free. And then Paul says in a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians, talking about the Eucharist and all the chapters surrounding this, is talking about each other, relating to each other in community and the validity of that, the importance of that, the criticalness of that. And he makes this statement. He calls us being part of the body of the Lord. And then he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, for anyone who eats and drinks, he's talking about the communion, Eucharist, without recognizing they're part of the body of the Lord and what that implies. He says, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick. A number of you have died. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. The point is of all this, not trying to explain those contexts or what it possibly could mean because we could exegete that for a few weeks. But the point is, faith isn't a solo deal. The church isn't like a club you join, like a bike club. That you're a bicycle enthusiast and you find this club, so you go riding with them. And if you get in a spat, yeah, it's cool. Just drive on because you're a bicycle enthusiast all by yourself. Most people think church is just that, a commodity that sometimes helps, but eh, I'll go without it. Now that being said, and me spurning you in that regard is one thing, but it's also critically important for me to point out that God's people have never pulled off what they were called to do. The church has failed miserably for the most part and continues to fail. The very reason we have the epistles that we have in the New Testament to the church is because those early Christians sucked at being the church. That's why we have them. They were overtaken by corruption and dissension and they were prone to destroying the gift of oneness that was given through them through, through rivalry and through corrupt behavior and even idolatry. Just read First and Second Corinthians. The church has never been a pure or perfect instrument. Neither was Israel. At best, the church has been a profoundly ambiguous witness as we look back over the last 2,000 years of history. Actually, over that time, the church has often been a huge stumbling block to faith that they're supposed to represent. Instead of being driven by the Holy Spirit, the church has often been driven by fleshly passions of lust, avarice, malice, pride, you name it. Longing for power, 
The church has sinned against God and humanity has refused to be God's prophetic voice. That continues to our day. Though there are some bright spots historically, <laughs> right? There are scores of times when the organized church has been more about doing evil than doing good. Yet, in spite of that, we stand up and we confess in the creed that God has chosen this instrument, the church, and that she has an exalted calling. And though many of her members have betrayed that calling, the church manages to survive <laughs> by God's hand, which is also true about Israel. We don't fully understand why God chose to call the church into existence, but he did. And the ones who have attempted to be faithful in the church, even in her midst of her corruption, have always been committed to what the Latin phrase is semper reformata. It means constantly reforming, constantly reforming, because we know we keep missing the calling to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. A huge example of this was the Reformation that most of us are children of, though many of the consequences of that were dire. The point is, we need the church even when she isn't all she's supposed to be. And to ignore her place in our spiritual lives is to distort authentic Christian life. Thinking that you can do faith without the church causes something essential to be lost in us. So, okay, we have about two minutes to unpack the theology of the church. So buckle up. Using these four criteria, one, holy Catholic apostolic church. These are four ideals, right? They're not realities that we see fully. And they constitute what I believe to be a prophetic calling, a calling we should recommit to every time we say the creed. We believe in the church, right? The church is one. That's where it starts. The oneness must be our ideal. This means that there is only one church just like there's only one God, God only sees one church, which implies that most of us need a sight correction. Now, let me give you a simple history lesson that many of you don't know about the church. And where is the little, at my feet? Oh, thank you. It's at my feet. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Here's Jesus. He comes in time. Right? So about the first hundred years, oh, about here, I don't know if you can see it all, all the apostles die. It's 90, you'll say. The apostles start dying. In this period, as the apostles die, in the first 100 years, they already are instituting to backfill the crisis of leadership, this group called the Episcopacy. Bishops, priests, or pastors and deacons or deaconesses, right? That's what starts to happen here. After the first hundred years happen, the second hundred years occurs. And during that time, about somewhere in the early part of that, these Gnostics start showing up. These are the guys that start attacking the, the very basis of what Christianity is about. It goes on. There's all kinds of craziness going on. And somewhere, somewhere about 170 
what was happening is they were appealing to the apostles. And most of the people in here say, well, I know someone who knew someone. But by 170, they're starting to appeal to the writings of the apostles. And they're starting to, to formulate this great creed that we have that sort of gives it form. Now we hit 200, right? 200 years, same church. Then we get up to about 300, right around 356 comes the first time that they say this is what the New Testament says. Or These are the New Testament books. It was decided by 356 what the books actually were, which is like 400 years after Jesus, so not everybody at the foot of the cross was handed a Gideon Bible. So now we get up to 400, 500, 600, somewhere in between five and 600 is the first time the Bible is actually put into one book. It's under Cassidorius, it's bound. It's the first time a bound Bible was ever put together, like 600 years after Jesus. Okay. Then we go 600, 700, 800, 900, 1,054, one church. One. And then there was this deal that happened, this little spat between East and West, and we have what's this great schism it's called, and you have the Roman church, and you have the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox church, and they split. They're basically saying the same thing, practicing the same things, doing the same kinds of liturgies, I mean, the same kinds of practices and prayers, etc. but they're separate. Most of it was over a couple of theological questions, but mostly about power. Surprise. Okay. <laughs> then this goes on until 1517. In 1517, there's a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther who was looking at the church saying, oh my goodness, there are, there's, you know, Houston, we have a problem, right? And, and basically nailed 95 theses on a wall in a church um, called All Saints Church. And it began what is called the Protestant Reformation. From here, churches began to split over what they interpreted verses in the Bible to be. So it went from basically two, a thousand years, one church, another 500 years, two churches, and then it began to fragment. <coughs> 41,000 denominations right now. Hundreds of thousands of free churches. Hundreds of thousands. In America alone, probably 250,000 free churches. These ancient churches weren't denominations. The Baptists don't go all the way back here. <laughs> Your Assembly of God background doesn't go back here to 90. Doesn't. Now, was there need for reforma reformation? Absolutely. Was there need for privatizing faith and fragmentation? Probably not. So when we look at the church today, we can hardly think she is one. So the prophetic call for us is we must do all we can to take steps toward oneness. Right? Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is just as important a verse as you must be born again. It's not a tier two verse. 
See, people that claim that they love the Bible oftentimes love parts of it. Thank you for that, amen. <laughs> Make every effort to keep the unity of the faith through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, through all, and in all. Simple application of this is when you run into people that go to other churches in our city or around the country, recognize they're part of the one church. And you should be honored and curious about what God is doing in their context. The unity we're to walk in is not the same, uh, you know, it, it's not all of us having the same way of thinking, right, about all things. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't see things all the same way, but I, I should have said that wrong. We don't see all things the same way, but we should think about life the same way. We should see things with the mind of Christ, which describes that we're to not only look on our own interests, but on the interests of others. Augustine had a, uh, a dictum that helps toward this end. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, freedom. In all things, charity. Right? So we're not to be polarized by fighting or using violent speech with each other. We can disagree, but we can't villainize one another. Right? We're one. Okay, secondly, the church is holy. And holiness must be our ideal. Holy means to be different. Now, you can go two ways on this. If you think that holiness as being different than others in doctrinal issues or moral issues, holiness will divide us one from another, depending on what we're thinking about a particular thing. Or we can look at holiness as a commitment to being different from each other in the fact that we don't, are different in the fact that we refuse to fight and attack one another over our differences, that we respond differently to differences, that somehow we choose to be loving persons who welcome others. We're different in the fact that we're loving. And I love the text in, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians, listen to it. This should be the church. Love endures long, is patient and kind. It's never envious nor bowls over with jealousy. It's not boastful or vainglorious, does not display itself haughtily. It's not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It is not rude or unmannerly and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's not touchy. It's not fretful. It's not resentful. It doesn't take account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice or unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevails. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances. It endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fails out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. That should be our commitment to holiness, is to simply be different because we love. Thirdly, the church is Catholic. Again, this is not Roman Catholicism, but Catholicity should be our ideal. The word Catholic in the Greek just means it's throughout the whole. It means both a universality that holds all of us together, and it also means an inclusiveness that has enough room for us to embrace differences within a larger unity. Listen to Paul on this. There is neither, this is Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek in the church, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. See, these are the great boundary markers of the first century. Ethnicity, Jew or Greek. Class, slave or free. Gender, male or female. 
Humans were not distinguished by these. They were put in their place by these, particularly in the ancient world, and that continues today. But listen to Luke Johnson on this point. He says, quote, The world constructed by humans is a place of rivalry and competition, murder and war. It is a place of envy and pride based on the distinctions people use to define themselves by exclusion. Paul suggests that the church's entire mission is to provide an alternative way of life, one measured by the new human, who is Jesus, and one that grows through inclusion and reciprocity rather than through exclusion, end quote. Beautiful, right? So when we say in the creed we're committed to Catholicity, that's what we're committing to. And then finally, the church is apostolic, and apostolicity must be our ideal. What does that mean? Apostolic just simply means that we must be a church that would be recognized by the apostles. The apostolic tradition includes more than scripture. It includes traditions, interpretations, an original impulse to devotion and commitment found in those apostolic communities of faith. The easiest way to do this is always to return to the simple and radical New Testament. That style of living, there was a rejection of wealth and power and prestige in favor of simplicity, sometimes poverty, and lowly service. The church being present in a town like Tulsa, when the plagues would come, everyone that was wealthy would split into the country because they didn't know what to do, just get out of town. And you know what the church would do? They'd stay in town, and they'd care for the sick, and they'd bury the dead. Many times, they died in the process, in the plagues. What oriented them to that? That's that apostolic church. And they oriented their lives around obedience to the Holy Spirit in the midst of their deep and fervent renewal. So when we stand and we say, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we're speaking by faith and we're speaking in hope and we're speaking prophetically. Sanctuary has been organized, not because we think we're the most right here in Tulsa or anywhere else, We have come together in the hope of reflecting the call of being part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Amen. Let's stand.